And joining me this hour is Dr. Rajbans, President of the Malaysian Wellness Society. Great to see you again, Dr. Yeah, good morning, Shaj. So you're back and uh, how do you feel? I feel much better, actually. It's surreal. My journey the last couple of weeks has been accelerated and um, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's so bizarre to be back in the studio, but I'm actually really happy to be back at work and well enough. Yeah, I know. I, you know, it was like quite a surprise, isn't it? Suddenly, that something like that. How do you discover it and how, what did you do, actually? Okay, well, not everyone knows. So let me just uh, come right out and say it. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer stage one in the middle of January. It was mm-hmm. a complete and utter shock. How I discovered it was, I was, you know, what I do every month is a self check, mm-hmm. and um, I found a lump. And um, being me, I was <laughs> completely panic stricken. So I actually went to see my breast surgeon the very next day and uh, we did a mammogram we did the ultrasound when I was undergoing the ultrasound I w- observed the technician's face and I knew something was up mm-hmm. and she quietly said to me she said um, I think we need to do a biopsy mm-hmm. so she scheduled one for me the very next day this was the day before my birthday my 45th birthday wow. you know? okay. so what a great and utter horrible mm-hmm. present for me to undergo um, we did the biopsy and I had to wait an entire week to find out the results of that biopsy. Mm, so it does it did prove that it was uh, stage one anyway. Yes, yeah. it did. And the amazing thing was that we caught it very early. Yeah. So the prognosis was good. My doctor was very positive and she was very uh, optimistic about recovery and, and whatnot. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think I, I know your doctor well, so I spoke <laughs> to her. And uh, if you follow the, the treatment, you know, it will be complete cure. So what treatment will you actually undergo? Okay, well um, just a few days after the cancer diagnosis, I underwent a lumpectomy which uh, means that they took out the cancer. In fact, there wasn't just one, there were two tumors that were in uh, my left breast and while I am still recovering and I mean they also took out some lymph nodes to check and um, you know, actually that one's even more painful (laughs) (laughs) recovering from that because it involves, you know, sensitivity in the arms and, and limited mobility in that side of my body I will be starting radiation therapy next week and yeah. this is something that will go on for 15 days back to back and um, once uh, as soon as that's over then I start uh, hormone treatments which is tamoxifen so actually your prognosis actually is quite good isn't it and uh, of course the radiotherapy will be after the wound has healed that's why they delayed to start mm-hmm. after that so how are you coping actually I'm coping really well I'm very positive you know I'm just uh, very thankful and grateful that I caught this early and I can't say it enough early detection is so so important yeah I think it definitely shows that you know the the recovery or the full recovery from stage one is really really good and being positive is actually very very important yeah because from all my patients I find for whatever illness you know those who are positive do much better than those who just sort of give up and get negative mm-hmm. so I think that's that's the way to go yeah. right well we're still talking about cancer this morning and you know when cancer hit it hits you it doesn't matter what your background is it's you're the luck of the draw really but for the poor who live in rural areas it is a double blow we'll find out what the government plans for the low-income b40 group after james blunt here on light 
Dr. Rajban is president of the Malaysian Wellness Society in with me this morning for HealthWise and we're still discussing cancer. Now, for people in the rural area when they get diagnosed with cancer, there are several issues that come to mind. One is that the lack of funds to travel the distance to the nearest hospital. A lot of patients in rural areas also opt for alternative medicines while others um, have no one to take care of their children if they go for treatments according to to the health ministry now the situation has worsened through the years and hence the launch of the national health protection scheme for the low income B40 group called Paduli Kesihatan B40 is covering those ages 50 and above and this is a present surprise isn't it Dr. Ajbans? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's really true, actually. You know, if you look at cancer treatment, it's not a short-term treatment, you know, it's a long-term treatment. And like we just discussed, you know, if you need some radiotherapy, it's like back back for some can go up to 30 days even, you know. And for people who stay in uh, rural areas, for them to come, you know, every day for the treatment because it's the centers that have this IG in the big cities mm. don't have in the small towns and how are they going to come in, you know, to for the treatment if they're staying far away and, and they can't afford to come and stay in KL, for example, yeah. or, you know, in Penang or JB, you know, where are they going to stay, you know, unless they have relatives, it's going to be very difficult. So I agree that, uh, you know, for this group of people, especially in the rural areas uh, right now, I think uh, cancer treatment is going to be something that's really going to be difficult. Right. How limited actually are cancer treatment facilities throughout the country? I mean, uh, I think just a few days ago in the papers, it was said, you know, there are only about 110 uh, oncologists. And, but most of them are centered because the treatments that you use for this are actually very expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, scanners and the radiotherapy and the drugs. And so most of them are just based in the big cities. So if you look at uh, smaller towns and smaller areas, it's definitely got nothing. you got maybe basic diagnostic techniques. Yeah. Uh, but once they diagnose, they want to refer back to the, you know, we got a, like a national cancer center in Putrajaya, you know, so uh, it's not easy for everyone to go there yes. and, and then you know where you're going to stay and to travel up and down is going to be difficult so so these are some of the things that we have to look and see how we can sort of improve on that sort of facilities you know even in the smaller towns and areas mm-hmm. and what about the biggest problems concerning early cancer detection in Malaysia I know that a lot of these patients come in with already advanced stages yeah and I think that's where again uh, education is important the higher income group the more educated you know like you know you will be looking out and you picked up things early I think a lot of those people they quickly go if they suspect something they got symptoms quickly go to a doctor and they, things are done faster but you know someone in the rural area can assume a lot of symptoms for other things you know even if they do suspect they, they might not come up and you know they might not go to a western sort of a hospital they might right. still try alternative therapies thinking it's something else that's causing their problems and they say a lot of them come to us in quite uh, advanced stages stage 3, stage 4 Well that's really unfortunate isn't it? Coming up a new American American research has found that at-home acupressure could help women relieve some of the side effects of breast cancer treatment. That is up next after Bette Midler and the traffic update here on Light. The Light Breakfast with Shaz and uh, on HealthWise. Joining me this morning, of course, as usual, Dr. Rajbans, president of the Malaysian Wellness Society. Now, um, a new American research has found that at-home acupressure could help women relieve some of the side effects of breast cancer treatment. It's uh, been carried out by researchers from the University of Michigan Cancer Center. The new study looked at the effects of acupressure on symptoms experienced by breast cancer survivors after treatment had ended, including 
chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and poor sleep, which um, all commonly accompanies fatigue. What are your thoughts on this, Dr. Rajmans? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at acupuncture, it's actually part of the same concept of acupuncture, isn't it? And, you know, it's an ancient art from China. And uh, we know the benefits of acupuncture. Now, so things like acupuncture, acupuncture are no more alternative medicine. They're actually called complementary medicine. Mm-hmm. That means a lot of uh, Western-based doctors also believe that this can support your right. treatment. So it's it been upgraded. Upgraded, yeah, definitely. <laughs> in, in uh, I think Putrajaya with the National Cancer Center, they actually caught the Chinese uh, alternative in the hospital itself. Wow. Where there are now three doctors who are supporting the cancer treatment. So some of the, the Western-trained oncologists will actually refer some of their patients to get the support like this, acupuncture, certain herbs, certain uh, things like acupressure. So I think definitely it's uh, going to be very beneficial to help. They say actually help remove the blockages that are there. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, the thing is we're going to do it themselves, uh, then they probably have to learn how to do this, uh, you know, acupressure. Right. They have to probably get trained from someone who knows what to do, teach them what they need to do uh, so that they can do this uh, in their own home. Right. So, you know, it's not widely used so far, but it may become something yeah. that is I think the it's norm, something yeah? that you support. It's not an alternative. That means you must go for your, your treatment. You know, that uh, whatever protocols the doctor has put for you, this will be something to support, you know, that uh, especially after the treatment is over because most of the, uh, you know, the treatment by oncologists are, you know, some chemo or radiotherapy for a certain uh, cause and then it's finished. You know, and then they wait and see. And I think during this period is when you can look at other things that will support your overall well-being. Well, that's great news indeed. Now, coming up, breakfast may not help with weight loss. After all, this is a new study that they've come up with now. These things change, don't they? Well, we'll find out a little bit more about um, breakfast and losing weight. Up next, after Charlie Puth here on Light. And with me this morning is Dr. Rajbans, president of the Malaysian Wellness Society. Now, a new Australian study has found that despite breakfast being touted as the most important meal of the day, it may not be as important for weight loss as previously thought. And this new study actually looked at 13 randomized controlled trials from the last 28 years to investigate whether regularly eating breakfast could have a positive effect on weight change and daily energy intake. And they found that, you know, those who skip breakfast, could also lose a lot of weight. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Rajvans? Yeah, I think the, what they thought was uh, the earlier studies looked at, uh, you know, breakfast as, uh, you know, if you don't take breakfast, then what you end up doing is eating a lot the rest of the day because, mm. you know, very mm-hmm. hungry. But I think that's not really what happens. The thing is, today with the 16-hour fast, some of the people are looking, looking at the 16-hour intermittent fasting where they actually don't even take breakfast and they only have the first meal at almost lunchtime and that helps them lose weight. So it's not actually the breakfast. Either. What I believe is actually what you eat for breakfast. Right? I see. So if you're going to get up early morning and you're going to go and have two roti chanais or a whole <laughs> load of mee goreng, you know, they're full of carbs. Or sugary cereal sugary as cereals, well. Yeah. So by 10 o'clock in the morning, you're going to get hungry again mm. because, you know, the, the insulin spikes. Mm-hmm. So the sugar comes down, you get hungry. So at 10 o'clock, you have your kueh. And then at uh, 1 o'clock again, you're hungry and you have your banana leaf rice. So it's actually the what you eat actually is more important than what you don't eat. So if you actually skip breakfast then you're, you don't have any insulin spike actually and mm. you actually might not feel that hungry but that's again what I talk about intermittent fasting uh, but if you're going to have a late supper and then you're going to s- have a later breakfast mm. and then you still end up eating more meals than necessary you're yeah. still going to put on weight so I think it's not skipping breakfast not skipping breakfast I think it's eating right that's yes. more important eating the right things that are not very high in sugars not high in fat that don't spike your insulin and that overall are healthy actually yeah. and that's what you have to do is how you 
you lose weight. So what would you recommend people eat for breakfast for those who want to eat breakfast? Yeah, I think it's something that you know shouldn't have too much of sugar. Now, if you're going to have roti canai in the morning, then maybe <laughs> one small roti canai with uh, you know a, a drink that doesn't have too much of sugar might help. But ideally, I would take something that's you know with uh, you know like let's say eggs, eggs and sausages, uh, sausages yeah. or something that you know protein based. Protein based a bit. If you go, let's say going to take nasi lemak, make sure you take a, a bit more of the cucumber and the nuts and the you know okay you had don't mm-hmm. take a fried chicken but. Uh, take rice, but take it a bit less, so that you overall you don't spike your insulin, so that you actually have a healthier sort of a breakfast rather than a, a heavy carbohydrate breakfast in the morning that can then increase your hunger spanks over the rest of the day. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, hope that puts you off your you know very uh, carb uh, heavy breakfast. <laughs> well, coming up, we'll find out if uh, alkaline water lives up to the hype. What are the benefits, if any, after bad company here on light? And with me this morning, Doctor. Rajban's president of the Malaysian Wellness Society. Now, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, my father actually said, oh, you should look into getting an alkaline water dispenser. And I was like, what's that? (laughs) Well, drinking water is good for you, but is there a way to make drinking water even better? I mean, I have heard a little bit about alkaline water. I don't know what it is. Can you explain what alkaline water is and if there are really any benefits to this? I suppose it's just the pH of the water, isn't it? You know, whether once you make the pH more than... uh, seven it then becomes more alkaline but if you look at our own body physiology and our biochemistry our body actually can maintain it and it has to maintain the pH in our blood Mm -hmm. you know it makes sure that it's neutral it's not going to be very acidic or too alkaline so now the problem is when you get uh, sort of too much of uh, acidic situation in the body it's basically what you eat yeah. You know, so if you eat a lot of uh, meat, especially, it changes, it becomes more acidic, yeah. whereas fruits and vegetables are more alkaline. Mm-hmm. So I think what is important, diet, of course, the body can still adjust. It will know how to do, unless you've got a problem with your kidneys or whatever, where you're, you lose that capability. But otherwise, the body can adjust, adjust. But what is more important is that if you have a very acidic environment, it's not the acidic environment, but you know the foods that cause too much acid also probably increases your free radicals, also yes. increases the inflammation. It's all the other things that cause the damage, you know. So um, stress as well stress, makes your body you know, acidic. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. So poor sleep, you know, all these things. So now, what I would suggest is that you know, it's it's looking after that part of it. You know, your the right tired. You know, uh, making sure you have enough sleep, manage your stress. A bit of exercise will help. You know, to get rid of some of the toxins. So mm-hmm. that is thing is where it's more important. So whether drinking alkaline water per se, whether <laughs> it makes a difference, I'm not sure. Right? I don't think so it can do you any harm. But whether that is the all sort of treatment is not something that I would suggest. I would suggest have an overall healthy lifestyle and your body will never go acidic. Right. I, I totally agree with you. I'm not willing to spend thousands <laughs> on just yeah. water. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it is. I would rather spend that money on having a healthy diet yeah. that's more healthy for your body, nutrients, which reduce the free radicals, reduce inflammation. And I think that's what actually causes disease anyway. Right. Thank you, Dr. Rajvans. Thank you.